Hello, and welcome back to Evangelize Me. I'm Don Smith, and I'm happy that you're joining me for this study in 1 Thessalonians. And today, we'll begin with chapter 1. But before we begin, we want to uh, remember the purpose of this study. Because we're not just studying for the sake of studying, right? We're studying so that, uh, so well, four things. So that we can gain a deep practical understanding of the scriptures. That the scriptures are the word of God to us. They are life-giving. They are filled with hope and promises. And the deeper our uh, relationship with the scriptures, the deeper our relationship with Christ. We also want to learn how to study the scripture by asking questions and digging into the verses, digging into the books, so that, uh, so that we can discover the profound truths and realities that God is revealing in them. Uh, we also want to learn how to practically apply them to our lives, right? It's not, uh, uh, James talks about like looking in a mirror and, and going away and not really seeing what was, uh, not, not correcting what you saw in the mirror. And the scriptures are like that. They point out to us how to live the Christian life. And so we want to be able to, to extract those things that are able to bring us into the abundant life with Christ. And finally, we want to hear the Lord's personal message for each one of us. Because the Lord is our dad. And uh, this is his love letter to us. This is his revelation of himself uh, through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, brought to us. And even though it's written 2,000 years ago, or even longer in the Old Testament, uh, the word is alive, the scriptures say, and able to speak to us individually and give us words of hope and encouragement uh, today. And so... We're going to begin with verse 1. And the the letter begins with people's names, which is very different for us, right? When uh, when we are sending letters, what we do, uh, we say, dear so-and-so, and then we have the body of the letter, and then at the end of it, we put the author. But in this case, in the ancient Greek world, what you'd start with is the author. So you'd say, you know, I, Don, I'm writing to you guys out there in the internet world. And uh, I hope and pray that you have peace and grace. And then I would write my letter. And that's the typical way that all ancient Greek letters begin. And so Paul, of course, is living in the ancient Greek world. And so he begins with this list of names. And so when you first begin this letter, you read uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And probably what we do is, uh, probably I'm guessing most of you, you know, if you did your homework and read it, you probably just glanced over that and said, oh yeah, there's some people's names now, let's, let's get on with the book. But it's really important. I mean, like every word of the scriptures is there for a reason. And so being able to stop and say, okay, well, like, who are these people? And so Paul, obviously, we talked about him in our last session. He's the apostle. Silvanus, who is that? Right, and so it's and and again, you know, we'd have a tendency just to skip over these things, but uh, this is a the uh, the Greek version of uh, the name Silas, which is the name of Paul's companion who's with him on this missionary journey, and so uh, you know, last week when we looked at Paul getting thrown into prison in uh, Philippi, he gets beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Silas is also beaten with rods and thrown into prison, right, and he's Paul's traveling companion. Uh, with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? And um, and so he's traveling with Paul, and and he doesn't. Uh, he's basically joins Paul on this missionary journey, and you, and that's all that we find of him in the Book of Acts. But we know that he's a very important part of the leadership of the early church, not only because of his relationship with Paul, but later on we find that he has a relationship with Peter. 
Uh, in fact, uh, you know, we, we often have an image of Paul, and this is popular in, in uh, art, of Paul sitting at a desk writing these letters. But the truth is, he probably uh, dictated it to a scribe, and, and that's how most ancient letters were written. And it's interesting that when Peter is writing one of his letters, he says, you know, that, uh, that his scribe is Silas. And so Silas has a, you know, he travels on this missionary journey with Paul and then later on ends up working with Peter. <clears throat> and then, of course, the third name, Timothy. Uh, I don't know if you recognize that, but of course, there's some New Testament books called Timothy, First and Second Timothy, written by Paul. Uh, those are the very last books that he writes, uh, and so we aren't going to get to those for a very long time. But Second uh, Timothy is the very last letter that Paul writes that we have in the scriptures. Uh, Paul talks about Timothy as his beloved son, as his partner in the gospel. Uh, he sends him on very important missions to churches that are in trouble and struggling. Uh, he's really Paul's right-hand man. And, uh, and of course, Timothy is also the one that we saw last week that Paul sent to visit the Thessalonians because he was so worried about them and, and was able to bring back a good report. And so, um, in, in this uh, opening, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, what, what was really being said is all three of these men contributed to the writing of the letter. Obviously, Paul's the primary author, and you can see that in certain places in the letter, but uh, all three of them are there. <clears throat> and it says that they're writing to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, I, again, I just want to remind you that this is a letter that is written within 20 years of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are some uh, who are like in a spirituality school that say Christ didn't come to found a church, right? He didn't come to find some sort of institution. Uh, and it's interesting that this, this word, church, is in such an early document, right? Uh, the Greek word is eglesia, which basically means assembly. And it could be used in a secular sense of like, you know, people assembling, you know, for uh, a meeting of some sort, right? But, but Paul, of course is a Pharisee, and he's, a, he's an Old Testament scripture scholar. He would have known and memorized huge portions of the Old Testament. And this word Iglesia is very significant in the Old Testament because it is the, the, the word that's translated. When, when you're reading the Old Testament, it'll say the assembly of God's people. And it's really the, the church of God's people. And so, you know, Moses will call all the Israelites to the, to, to the tabernacle, to the assembly of the people before the Lord. And it's really, it's exact same word. And so Paul is using this word on purpose to ascribe uh, the people of God to these people in Thessalonica, which is kind of a profound thing because, of course, they're the chosen people of God. They're the people who God has called out of slavery and out of darkness into the light. And that, uh, you know, the Jewish people always associated that with, like, this is just for Jewish people. And now, because of the gospel, it has been exploded into all of humankind. And all of us are invited to be part of the, uh, the Iglesia, the assembly to the church of the Thessalonians. And so uh, it goes on, it says that this church of the Thessalonians is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So physically it's located in Thessalonica, right? But in reality it is in God himself. 
Later on, Paul uses a phrase in Christ over and over and over. Uh, it's only here and in 2 Timothy that he refers to it as being in God and Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but you think about what this is really saying, um, that in our union with Christ through baptism, we become one with him. And that in being one with Christ, that uh, we become his body. And as part of being part of him, we become part of the Trinity, right? We, we enter into the divine life. And so we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we live and move and have our being. That's where uh, we exist as a church. And then he says, grace and peace to you. He says, uh, uh, well, I just wanted to point out, uh, there are some people who, um, who struggle with the idea of the Trinity, and, and there are even people who say, like, it was made up later on after, you know, Constantine legalized the church and all of that stuff. There's even a church not far from here. I drive by it every morning on my way to work, and they have a, you know, big display about, you know, there's no such thing as a Trinity. And, uh, and, and yet here, less than 20 years... <laughs> after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, is this reference, right, in the first chapter of First Thessalonians, to the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ and being in the Holy Spirit. And so you have all three of these persons acknowledged in their separateness and, uh, and of course, uh, in their oneness as well. <clears throat> and so, so that's just verse one. That's just the introduction. So we're going to go on to verse two. You ready for this? says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, remembering you in our prayers unceasingly. I, I love, one of the things I love about Paul is the way that he expressed things. You know, this, this always for all of you. It's sort of like he includes everything. It's like when he says, you know, exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think, right? Or uh, uh, he, he uses these phrases which, which just expands the, the meaning to the utmost of the truth that he's trying to get across, right? So he's, he's praying always, all the time, for all of the Thessalonians, remembering you in our prayers unceasingly. Now, you may think that Paul is given to hyperbole here, that he's, uh, you know, he's, um, you know, obviously he isn't praying for the Thessalonians every minute of the day, but uh, at the end of this book, he's going to encourage the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing, and he does that in several other of his letters. And, and if, uh, if, if we think of prayer as the thing that we are doing, if the th it's something that we do, then it's, it's, it would almost be impossible to do this all the time, right? But that's not really the Christian understanding of prayer. And so I wanted to go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church just for a minute to look at how it defines prayer and how it, how it talks about prayer in our daily lives so that you can understand what Paul means when he says, I'm praying for you always without ceasing. So he says prayer, the Catechism says this, prayer is the living relationship of the children of God with their Father, who is good beyond measure, with his Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit. Prayer is the living relationship. So if you think about it, prayer is not something we do, right? It's something that we live in. We live in this relationship with God. It's not, uh, you know, like I get up and I do my little devotional reading for 15 minutes in the morning and say, okay, I've done my, I've done my prayers. 
right? It is uh, a living relationship with uh, the Father who is good beyond measure and loves us, uh, with his Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, and the Holy Spirit who empowers us to, uh, to walk in this newness of life. The Catechism goes on in a few paragraphs later, and it says, Thus, the life of prayer is the habit of being in the presence of, of the thrice holy God and in communion with him. So this, uh, again, again, it doesn't have anything to do with doing something. It's the habit of being. And you notice, you know, what it is. It, it's being in the presence of the Lord. Now, we know that the Lord is everywhere present. We know that, uh, uh, you know, in thinking about that idea of everywhere present, that uh, he, he fills up all the space of, uh, of everywhere. And so in a very real way, we are completely surrounded and pressed, pressed in upon by God's presence. Um, and so it's, 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 there's no place we could ever go that's away from his presence. So this idea of the habit of being aware that we are in his presence, that we are always in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you think about how John says that God is love. It means we live and move and have our being in the presence of love. That we are surrounded with love. We, are, we, we have never been unloved, right? And so it's this, uh, this habit of living and being aware and, and finding our being in the midst of God's presence throughout the day throughout each moment of the day. As the Catechism says in this paragraph, it says, prayer in the events of each day and each moment is one of the secrets of the kingdom revealed to the little children, to the servants of Christ and to the poor of the Beatitudes. Prayer in the events of each day. Now you think about how many events there are in each day, right? There are, uh, you know, the event of waking up and the event of choosing what you're going to wear, the event of choosing what you're going to have for breakfast, the event of getting ready for work and going to work, and, uh, you know, the event of having someone uh, cut you off in traffic on your way to work. There's all of these events. There's this, actually, the day is just a continuous flow of events. And it says, so, so prayer in the events of each day and each moment is one of the secrets of the kingdom. It's really incredible, right, that the Catechism gives us one of the secrets of the kingdom, and that secret is this constant communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul is saying, in this constant communion with God, one of the things that he is always um, giving thanks for, uh, he says, he says, give thanks for you always remembering you in our prayers. It's interesting to me, too, that it's also, it's not just praying for them, like, uh, you know, expressing, uh, obviously, Paul had a lot of fear and anxiety about their safety and their, uh, the safety of their faith, but that he's also giving thanks. And, and, uh, and, and that would be another interesting study to do. It's like, okay, so giving thanks, and we know that Paul is, expresses somewhere that we should give thanks in all situations because this is the will of God for us. There's lots and lots of scriptures about giving thanks and thankfulness. And of course, it's not just a kind of a passing thing. Uh, you know, it's not just Paul says, Lord, well, thanks, thanks for those people over there, but that it's a, it's a, it's a wellspring of thanksgiving. And of course, that's related to the, the, the summit, the core of Christianity, uh, because that word, thanksgiving, in Greek is Eucharista, right? The Eucharist, 
giving thanks is the central prayer of the church. And so he's always giving thanks to God, always remembering their prayers. And, he, and he, he says, calling to mind, so as he's praying for them and thinking about them, he says, I'm calling to mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your endurance and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father, knowing, brothers, loved by God, how you were chosen. And so I highlighted in this verse, I want to highlight that, Faith and love and hope. And these are the cardinal virtues, the ones that given to us in faith um, uh, by the Father. And, of course, that uh, it's uh, the process of growing in these virtues, right? And, and it's interesting that, again, in this really early document, you have faith and hope and love, these core virtues of Christianity. And he's calling to mind the work of faith. Now, in, in, sometimes people have, like, a, faith is the opposite of work, Right? And it's interesting when you study the scriptures, there's works of the law, which Paul condemns, right? This idea that I'm, I'm, I'm working to fulfill some sort of outward uh, standard that I'm going to be judged against. And then there is work of faith. And this is not an uncommon phrase that he uses, it's found in several other places. So this idea of the work of faith is the work around believing and having faith in Christ and the truth that he reveals about us. I don't know about you, but it takes a lot of work. <laughs> for me to believe that God loves me as much as he says he does. It takes a lot of work for me to believe that he's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of my, uh, the people that I love. It takes a lot of work to, uh, to battle through all the, the untruths, all the lies, so that I can come to believe, to have faith in the things that God says, right? And so this is the work of faith. And, uh, and then it talks about the labor of love, which, um, which is the, uh, the, the outward expression of love, right? It's, it's, you know, Paul, uh, John, excuse me, in his letters say, like, you just can't say uh, you love somebody and then not have an action to go with it, right? If I say I love you and then send you away hungry, I'm not really loving you. And so this idea that uh, this labor of love, but there's also in that phrase this sense of, like, it's, done, it's something that's done for the joy of doing it, right? It's not a work, it is, uh, it's almost like, a, you know, if, if someone loves old cars and they have an old car and they want to restore it, right? It's a ton of work, but it's, it's, they find such joy in it and satisfaction. It's, it's exciting. It's uh, satisfying. And it's the same it, it, with this idea of our hearts being filled with God's love, that it, when we're taking care of our brothers and encouraging them and feeding them and clothing them, that we're doing it out of joy, Right? This labor of love, this expression of love coming through us is joyful. And then he says the endurance of hope, hanging on to hope, uh, maintaining hope in the midst of difficult situations. Having hope even in hopeless situations, right? Having hope uh, in a God who is uh, able to do um, things that are impossible to do. Uh, having hope in eternal life having a hope that's beyond this life. And so this idea that, uh, that he, when he's thanking God for them and praying for them, he's remembering, he's calling to mind. It's interesting that it's, a, it's an active word there, right? This calling to mind. Um, so he calls to mind their work of faith, their labor of love, their endurance of hope um, before the God, our God and Father, knowing brothers, loved by God. And, and I wanted to just pause with this word brothers for a minute, because 
uh, notice that you know it's not just uh, knowing fellow believers or knowing uh, you know you Thessalonians, but that that he uses this family term. And Paul does this in all of his writings, but it's interesting that in Thessalonians, he uses these words, these familial terms, much more than he does in his other writings. And so he, later on, we're going to discover him talking about mothers and their children and, and fathers and sons. And so he's, he's very much placing Christianity in a context of family, that it's not just some club that they've joined, right? They're not just uh, like, oh, yeah, like, come join the Christian club. Uh, but that now there's a covenantal relationship. They've entered into the family of God. They've entered into the body of Christ, which now means we're not just friends. We're not just, uh, you know, co-workers or co-laborers or people who believe the same thing. We are family, brothers and sisters. And we are brothers and sisters who are loved by God. And that has a lot of practical ramifications as well, right? And then he says, uh, he says you know, I, I call to mind your work, your, your labor of love, your endurance, uh, knowing how you were chosen. And so Paul is uh, acknowledging that, that, that truth that we find in the gospel where Jesus says, you know, you didn't choose me, I chose you, right? That God created each one of us because he wanted us to be part of his family that he chose us. In fact, Paul, when he's writing the Ephesians, says he chose us before the foundation of the world, right? We were, we were created, we were thought about in God's mind, right? We weren't created before the foundation of the world, but we were conceived in God's mind before the creation of the world. He chose us to be part of his family. And Paul goes on, he says, um, he says, he says the four-hour gospel. So, so again, you get these little periods in there, and you got to not not uh, take each verse totally separately. He says, "For you were chosen for our gospel," which is it's, it's a little bit awkward because we don't talk this way. So it's because is a better way for me. So it's like you were chosen because our gospel did not come to you in word alone, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much conviction. And so Paul's saying, I know you were chosen, right? Like he can, he's almost like saying, I'm an objective witness to your chosenness because I saw the power of the Holy Spirit working in you to bring about the, the change, the conversion, the faith, which is the gift of God, right? That he's the one who changes heart. He's the one who enlightens our minds. He's the one who reveals himself to us. And, and so Paul's looking at that and said, listen, I, I saw God working in your hearts and minds and lives. I saw the conversion. I saw the change of the Holy Spirit. And, and that tells me that you were chosen, right? And so he's affirming that. Uh, it also, of course, in some places when Paul's preaching, his, his preaching is accompanied by miracles, right? Which is, again, that, that expression of power by the Holy Spirit demonstrating the power of the kingdom. And with much conviction that Paul uh, is, uh, is able to preach powerfully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and effectively under that inspiration. And he says, you know what sort of people we were <clears throat> among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, receiving the word in great affliction with joy from the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul turns his attention, after giving thanks for them and acknowledging their works and uh, their chosenness and the fact that they are beloved, he says, uh, he says, you know what sort of people we were when, when we were with you. And, and, and he says something I think is interesting. He says, we were that way for your sake. Like Paul makes this decision, like, I'm going to demonstrate something by my actions and my way of being with these people so that for their sake, for their salvation, for them to understand this gospel that I'm preaching and living before them. And, and then he acknowledges that they became imitators of us, that's uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, and of the Lord. And so he, he's encouraging this behavior, uh, you know, become an imitator of us and the Lord, receiving the word in great affliction. Now, isn't that interesting, right? Uh, that they became imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy and the Lord because their receiving of the word of God, the truth of the Lord, was done with great affliction. And, of course, that takes us back to uh, chapter 17 where, you know, persecution breaks out in Thessalonica immediately upon the gospel being preached and that, uh, you, know, the, um, you know, the disciples are arrested and brought before the city officials. And so this idea that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, the gospel is preached to them and immediately results in suffering in their lives. Uh, and of course, when Paul gets there, he's still bearing the, the, the marks, the bruises, the wounds of being beaten in Philippi, right? And so the message of the gospel is this profound, hopeful, joyful message filled with love, you know, talking about eternal, uh, eternal life, that God is providing for us, this adoption into his family, uh, this joyful message is accompanied by this profound living example of suffering, right? Which, of course, is exactly what the cross is. That's why it's the example of both the, the preachers of the gospel and the Lord himself, that this word comes with great affliction, affliction, and yet it's with joy from the Holy Spirit. It's weird to me and we'll talk about this more as we go on, how often joy and suffering are connected in the scriptures. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, uh, you know, Paul talks about, uh, you know, considering it uh, pure joy uh, to be afflicted. James says the same thing, this idea of joy and suffering, uh, and, and it has to do with knowing that God is at work and knowing that God is... Uh, is 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 uh, working through all of our circumstances and situations for His glory, and and Paul even says for our glory, right, and for our transformation, and as well as the salvation of others whom we pray and suffer for, and so this this joy in the midst of affliction, um, and he and so he says in in doing this in receiving the message in the midst of great affliction and yet with joy. Uh, you became a model for all believers of Macedonia and Achaia. So uh, all of that coastal region of, uh, of modern-day Greece, that they're kind of like their reputation, right? Like It's like, oh my gosh, did you hear about the Thessalonians? You know, like they got baptized one week and went to jail the next, <laughs> right? And, and so you have this, like, oh my gosh, what faith? You know, and this, this role modeling, this, like you became a model. It's like, oh my goodness, like I'm, I'm ready to do that. And again, see, uh, part of the reason we're doing this series is because 
I, I think that there's persecution coming, right? Uh, and, and certainly the scriptures talk about in the last days there's going to be this tremendous persecution. And, and with all the changes going on in this world and in this nation right now, this idea of finding joy and affliction, being willing to suffer, uh, being, uh, being able to, to, to suffer uh, so that you could be a model for other Christians, right? So that they would say, yeah, like, you know, I, I, this is what I believe, but man, that's scary. But like, but, but he did it. He, he stood up for what he believed. And even though he suffered, he'd, he didn't regret it, right? And so they become a model for all of Achaia. And it says, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only from Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place, your faith in God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. <laughs> So Paul is saying, like, it's, it's like, you know, when he goes to places, instead of saying, man, have you heard about the Thessalonians? People are coming up to him and saying, man, we heard about what happened in Thessalonia, right? It's like uh, this, this little network of Christians who hear, like, wow, did you hear what happened to the church? Because remember, uh, you know, Paul, when he goes to the Philippian, uh, to Philippi, he gets arrested and beaten and thrown in prison. But it doesn't say anything about any of the believers there, right? And, and so it's not uncommon for Paul to get in trouble and to get beaten or stoned and thrown in, in, into prison. But this is, a, this is a little bit different because in this situation, it wasn't just Paul, right? Remember, they came looking for Paul, but they ended up arresting some of these new believers. And so this is unique. And, and because it's unique, it has spread. And so they have this reputation now. And part of that reputation... Uh, it says, for they, the, the people who are talking about the Thessalonians, openly declare about us what sort of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So, again, this idea of conversion, right? This powerful change that takes place in these people's lives. And of course, in, in these ancient Roman cities, there would have been multiple temples to multiple gods. There were, excuse me, the Greek gods and Roman gods, and, uh, and there would have been uh, uh, temples dedicated to Caesar. There's, uh, you know, there's all of these um, different, you know, gods of fertility and gods of war. And, and so, for them to turn from their faith in these false gods to the living and true God, Right is this powerful and amazing thing, and and we would have a tendency to look at this and say like, oh yeah, that happened back in those days, right? But we don't have any idols now. We don't have you know temples, uh, you know like I don't I don't go downtown, you know, and 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 there's a big temple there that if uh, if I wanted to have a, a successful crop, I should go in there and burn some incense or or leave some sort of offering. I don't. I, we don't have that, right? <laughs> and so I, I sometimes again. We, I think when we read this, it's like, oh, yeah, they, you know, 2,000 years ago, there's a bunch of people, they turned from idols and, and became Christians, and that, that's great history. But, but again, this is God's word to us today, and so we have to stop and think, okay, so what are the idols today, right? The idols of materialism, the idols of, uh, you know, secularism and, and relativism, uh, of, 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 of uh, being... Uh, what we would in 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 the West say success, right? Uh, the the pride that we have because of the size of our home or the type of car we drive, all of those things are things that take us away 
transform our relationship with the Lord or, or have the potential to if they become idols, right? And so Paul talks about this idea of turning away from idols, turning away from the way the world functions. I think part of the problem with the church today is that it doesn't, we don't look any different than the world does, right? I mean, like, the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians go to church on Sunday sometimes, right? So it's like, what's the difference? I mean, like, you, you know, there, there's not any, uh, there's not anything I can see about your life, right? There's not any radical rejection of this modern understanding of life and what's, there's not any modern, uh, you know, a rejection of what's really important. And so this idea of like, no, 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 like, like having a life that's totally transformed and totally given over to God and totally dedicated to love, doing the hard work in marriages and families and communities uh, and of, of, of proclaiming the gospel with words and also with lives, right? That, that when people look at us, they see the Christian life. They see Christ himself. And so this isn't just a, an old history thing. But, but, and Paul is saying when, when people actually turn from idols to serve the living and true God, that's a really powerful thing. It's something that gets other people's attention. And so he says, you know, like, while I'm traveling around, I hear about the powerful conversion that you experienced everywhere I go. That's pretty cool. Wouldn't it be nice if some of us had that reputation? So Paul says, uh, the living and true God, to await his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. This is a really important part of Paul's message, uh, and he's, uh, and you know, it's obvious that that was something he's already uh, um, preached to them. And so, with the idea of uh, of the resurrection from the dead, that Christ raised from the dead, and that we're going to rise from the dead, important part of the message of Christ. And it says uh, this Jesus, who will deliver us from the coming wrath. Now. A lot of us are really, really comfortable with, uh, with God's love and God's mercy and God's compassion and, uh, and all of those attributes of his. But we find ourselves really uncomfortable with, with the idea of, of anger or wrath on the part of God. And, and it's important to recognize, I mean, there's, you know, we, we find it throughout the scriptures. The, you know, some people say it's like, oh, the, the God of the Old Testament, you're a really angry guy. But it's like, no, no, it's, it's the same God as the New Testament, right? And you find scriptures like this where, where Paul says, this God who he just acknowledged loves us uh, and, uh, and draws us into his family and is all about love, is delivering us from the coming wrath. And, and so I just wanted to take a moment to be able to say, there's a place for wrath, right? Uh, the problem is that most of our experience with human anger is that it's tainted and rooted in sin, right? It's, it's, it's rooted in our own woundedness. It's rooted in our own pride. It's rooted in, uh, you know, all of those, uh, those things about us that have, uh, that have caused us pain. It, it's out of our brokenness that this anger comes out, right? But God's anger doesn't come out of any brokenness, Right? It's not because he's wounded in some way. It's not because he's, uh, it, it's, it's a righteous anger. And, and you cannot, honestly, you cannot have love apart from anger. If you think about you know, like just being a parent and how you'd love your kids and how you would feel if someone deliberately wounded 
and injured one of your children, right? That would probably make you angry, <laughs> right? Uh, if someone deliberately uh, misled your child, if someone was, you know, deliberately putting one of your children in harm's way. Now, we know those things happen by accident, but like the word deliberately here is really important. This idea that like people are making choices intentionally to harm innocence or to, to um, uh, deceive them in some way. And so this idea that, that God has children, right, and that there are uh, evil, there's evil in this world, and there are evil people in this world who will deliberately, in, with evil intentions, just for the sake of inflicting pain, do evil things. And that God is angry with that behavior. That's one of the big messages of the gospel, is that God is just. He will repay every person according to their works. That's the judgment seat of Christ. It's reiterated over and over in the scriptures. And so this idea that each one of us is going to be judged on our actions, and when you think about someone who has lived their whole lives... <laughs> harming others. Remember what, what Jesus says, it's better for a millstone to be tied around someone's neck and thrown into the sea than to harm one of these little ones. And so this idea of the wrath to come, he's talking about uh, the great and terrible day of the Lord is the way that it's described. It's great for those of us who are welcoming our, uh, you know, our Savior, our brother, uh, and, and the fulfillment of our salvation. It's terrible for those that have done evil, that God brings retribution Right? And so, so again, like this, the, the entire gospel message is not just love, it is, it, it, it's about eternal life and about how we live and the calling for us to be humans as God created us to be humans and, and, uh, and the work of grace in our hearts so that we can truly be transformed from those broken, angry, hurtful people to sons and daughters of God. So that's the end of chapter one. And so your homework for this coming week is to read chapter two. Again, not a very long chapter. It won't take very long, but I want you to take your time with it. I want you to think about, like, what did we do in this chapter? We looked at some really, uh, uh, almost every word in some way, right? Even small words like in, being in God the Father. We looked at names, made sure we want to know who those are. Uh, we're we're going to talk about, you know, like, how, how do you get this information? It's pretty simple sometimes. Like, you know, so, you know. Uh, Silas, you know, or Sylvanus, who the heck is that? If you Google Sylvanus, it pulls up, a, you know, an article about, like, this is Paul's companion, and this is what he did, and these are the reference. I mean, like, it's not rocket science, but it's that being able to ask the question, right? Who is this guy? Uh, so, so you can begin your own study. You can just read, notice things, highlight things, ask questions. And the second thing you can do is write to me, because one of the things that I love to do is interact with people. And, of course, doing this in a video and podcast format, um, there's not any interaction. And so I, I'd love to hear uh, what you're thinking, what you're getting out of this, um, um, your questions, your processing. And so uh, feel free to write to me at dawn at evangelizeme.com. Um, don't worry if you don't get a response right away. Sometimes I'll be a little bit slow. Uh, my wife, Hollis, is my partner in this. In fact, she's running the camera right now. And... Um, she uh, will also be helping me answer these if, we, uh, if I get behind. So, so you can look forward to hearing from one of us, at least. 
Thank you for joining me in this uh, study of First Thessalonians. Uh, if you're uh, getting something out of this and would like to uh, support this ministry, then feel free to go to our website, www.evangelizeme.org, and click on the donut. Not the donut button. I don't, I don't have a donut button. The donate button. We'll take donuts. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. God bless you.